1 Kings chapter 12, we'll again read verses 25 down through the end of that chapter. We're laying the groundwork for the two little words in 1 Kings chapter 13 that begin verse 1, Now behold. We're trying to lay the context so that we can see the significance of what the Lord is going to point out to us here concerning the way of Jeroboam. So, 1 Kings chapter 12, verse 25. Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim and lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king consulted and made two golden calves. And he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. And he set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places, and made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month, on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which was in Judah, and he went up to the altar, thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart, and he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel and went up to the altar to burn incense." And of course, what we have here is we have a man who has been given rulership over ten of the tribes of Israel. And who gave him that rulership? The Lord gave him that rulership. And the Lord also promised to him that if he would walk in the ways of David, that if he would follow the Lord and the Lord's commandments, that the Lord would establish the kingdom in his kingdom in that nation, the nation of Israel. And of course, what we have here is a man who is really out for his own way. And what I wanted to bring out here was just some of the characteristics here and try to pick out some of these things because the way of Jeroboam is still with us today. So we saw, if you're looking at the sheet that I passed out here, if you saw right underneath the title, I wrote from the New Testament, 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 6 and then verse 11, when Paul writes about these things, he says, now these things happened, those things in the Old Testament, as examples for us so that we would not crave evil things as they also craved. Now these things happened to them as an example. 
And they are written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the age have come. So we know that one of the purposes for the Old Testament, we're not under the Mosaic economy, but one of the purposes of the Old Testament, the reason why it's been written down for us, for New Testament believers, is that we can look in it and we can see examples, right? We can see examples and we can see how the Lord responded to certain examples. <clears throat> and of course, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and we will here in just a few moments, you'll find that he gives five examples of Israel eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he shows, here's an example, Israel eating meat sacrificed to idols, Here's an example on what happened to them and how the Lord responded to them. And Paul says to the New Testament church, now these are examples. These are examples of what type? Warning. Right? These are warnings to us. And you'll see that in what I just quoted. Now these things happened as examples to us so that we would not do certain things. And so the Old Testament certainly helps us with that arena. Now, we've read this passage here in 1 Kings chapter 12. I want us to turn to 2 Chronicles. I wanted to see if there was a corresponding passage in the book of Chronicles that perhaps would give us some further information about the way of Jeroboam. And... What we have here is in chapter 13. This is after Rehoboam had died and Abijah is now in his place. And you'll see that, 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 1. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, Abijah became king over Judah. And what happened there is that there was war between Abijah and Jeroboam. Look at verse 3. Abijah began the battle with an army of valiant warriors, 400,000 chosen men. That is a massive army, isn't it? 400,000 valiant, the Bible calls them valiant warriors, chosen men, while Jeroboam drew up in battle formation against him with how many? 800,000 chosen men who were valiant warriors. So you got valiant warriors against valiant warriors, but one tribe is outnumbered, significantly outnumbered. You have here some 1.2 million men. This is a little bit different from playing war on video games, isn't it? 1.2 million men arrayed against each other. And Abijah is going to give us some information about Jeroboam's apostasy. Now I find it interesting that here you have this war and Abijah must really had liked to talk because he gives a great speech here. 
but in this speech we're going to find out some significant details and I just jotted down some as I was going through here devotionally verse 4 then Abijah stood on Mount Zemariam which is in the here country of Ephraim and said listen to me Jeroboam and all Israel do you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the rule over Israel forever to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? Now let's just stop and think about that statement here just for a minute. Is that statement true? It is true, but is it complete? And the answer to that is no. Because Abijah should have known, go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 11, that when Rehoboam tried to fight against Israel to restore the kingdom back to himself, the Lord spoke to Rehoboam through a prophet, verse 4. Thus says the Lord, You shall not go up or fight against your relatives. Return every man to his house. Now what's this word of the Lord? This thing is from who? Me. Okay, everybody see what I'm saying? Does he have a Bible promise? The answer to that is yes. God did make a covenant with David, did he not? But that's not all that the Bible had to say about the subject. The Bible also said, this division is of me. Don't go to war against your relatives. And yet, what is he doing? He's going to war. Now, I don't know if the war was initiated by Jeroboam or if it was by Abijah. It just says they were at war. But here's the point. The point is, he misunderstood the promises. And just as a side note, we often do that ourselves. We'll take a promise, a genuine promise from the Bible. A promise that is true. On a particular subject or on a particular theme or maybe just one that's precious to you. But that's not all that the Bible has to say about that subject which you're claiming the promise about. And of course when that happens, in some cases we end up being rather disappointed because we don't think that the promise has come true. But the fact is, there are other things written in the Scripture about that. Everybody see that? So he's taken a promise that is true, and now he's rebuking Jeroboam concerning that. 2 Chronicles, you know, yeah, here I am. 2 Chronicles chapter 13, and again, look at verse 6. Yet Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, the servant of Solomon, the son of David, rose up and rebelled against his master. So Jeroboam is a who? He's a rebel, is he not? And Abijah just calls him out about that. You are a rebel. You are rebelling against your master. Verse 7. 
In that rebellion, worthless men gathered about him, scoundrels who proved too strong for Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when he was young and timid and could not hold his own against them. So what is Abijah saying? He's saying that Jeroboam and these rebellious, worthless men, scoundrels, took advantage of the king's immaturity. Everybody see that in the text? He was young, he was timid, and could not hold his own against them. Does everybody see what Abijah is saying? Okay. So he's laying the blame for this at whose feet? Jeroboam, but the fact is, is that the kingdom was rent because of Solomon's transgression, right? Now, Rehoboam was foolish. The Lord used that for that to happen. But Abijah is laying the blame right there with Jeroboam, taking advantage of the immaturity of a young king. Verse 8, So now you intend to resist the kingdom of the Lord through the sons of David, being a great multitude, and having with you the golden calves which Jeroboam made for gods for you. So here's Jeroboam, and he's feeling, this is what Abijah's saying, you are feeling rather secure because you have what on your side? You've got the numbers on your side. And not only that, but you're feeling very secure in your little golden calves and all that has been accomplished through that. Verse 9, Have you not driven out the priest of the Lord, the sons of Aaron and the Levites, and made for yourself priests like the peoples of other lands? Whoever comes to consecrate himself with a young bull and seven rams, even he may become a priest of what are no gods. So what did Jeroboam do? He ejected... What line a priest? Aaron's, the Levitical line. He ejected that. And now he's giving ministry office for what? For hire. Anybody who concentrates himself, we're going to apply it to anybody who says, I'm called in the ministry. And they bring this offering, and they really want to be a priest. My seal of approval on that. Now, did God have qualifications for all this? He did have qualifications for all this. So he ejected those God chosen priests. This is also brought up in chapter 11 of this same book. If you go to verse 14 talks about Jeroboam. <clears throat> For the Levites left their pasture lands and their property and came to Judah and Jerusalem. For Jeroboam and his sons had excluded them from serving as priests to the Lord. He set up priests of his own for the high places, for the satires, and for the calves which he had made. Those from all the tribes of Israel 
who set their hearts on seeking the Lord God of Israel, followed them to Jerusalem to sacrifice to the Lord God of their fathers. They strengthened the kingdom of Judah and supported Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, for three years, for they walked in the way of David and Solomon for three years. So while Abijah was given this fancy speech, Jeroboam had taken those 800,000 men and had come up behind Abijah. And verse 13, Jeroboam had set an ambush to come from the rear. So Jeroboam wasn't even listening, was he? So that Israel was in front of Judah and the ambush was behind them. And when Judah turned around, behold, they were attacked both front and rear. So they cried to the Lord, and the priests blew the trumpets. Then the men of Judah raised a war cry, and when the men of Judah raised the war cry, then it was that God routed Jeroboam and all Israel before Abijah and Judah. And when the sons of Israel fled before Judah, God gave them into their hand. Now note verse 17. Abijah and his people defeated them with a great slaughter so that 500,000 chosen men of Israel fell slain. Can you imagine the bodies all over the ground? That's a half a million. I don't know what the current population of Richmond and the surrounding area is, but I would guess Richmond and the surrounding area is probably close to 350, 350,000 people. So just think about our whole city and the surrounding suburbs, dead. That's a great victory the Lord brought, didn't He? And in fact, the victory was so much, if you look at verse 20 of Second Chronicles chapter 13, Jeroboam did not again recover strength in the days of Abijah, and the Lord struck him, Jeroboam, and he died. So what, we, what do we see here? We see that you had a group of people who when Jeroboam instituted these golden calves, they left and you had a group of people that were ejected on purpose from being in the priesthood, and that was the Levitical priesthood. So Jeroboam really is setting up a parallel religion, isn't he? Does it have an altar? Does it have sacrifices? Does it have place that you ought to go to do this? Are there priests? Okay. And then he added something physical that people could see. And that was the calves. Now if we go back to 1 Kings, and again, as we noted last week, we know his motive. 1 Kings 12, verse 26. Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David if this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord of Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam king of Judah, and they will kill me and return to Rehoboam king of Judah. This man's definitely not believing the word of the Lord, is he? He 
He's taking these matters into his own hand. So he consulted. Verse 28. And whoever he consulted told him to make two golden calves, told him how to approach the people, told him what to say. So the king consulted and made two golden calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. What we see in verse 28 is that Jeroboam used Scripture. Abijah used Scripture, didn't he? But he didn't gather all the Scripture dealing with the matter. Jeroboam is using Scripture. And if you go just real quickly, go back to Exodus 32. When I'm reading through the Bible, I, I, I hesitate even to read that chapter. I like the following chapters where the Lord shows His glory to Moses. But this is such an austatious affront to God. To say that God is representative. Now think about this. That God is representative by an animal. Even man was giving rule over the animals. They make God lower than man and make His image like an animal. They can be any more affrontive to a holy God. And of course here you know, Exodus 32 and verse 4, Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And that's usually when we make our mistakes is when we think we don't have the patience to wait upon the Lord. Delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled around Aaron said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has become of him. I mean, just think about this. He just goes up for how many days? 40 days, 40 nights. He just disappears into the mountain. He's all by himself. And there's wild animals up there, isn't there? And so they're waiting and waiting and waiting. And so Aaron, under the pressure, I'm sure, of the people, said, tear off your gold rings and bring them to me. Verse 3, all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. Verse 4, he took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now how close is that to what Jeroboam said? Almost what? I didn't look in the Hebrew text, but almost what? Almost identical. Jeroboam is using the Bible. And the second thing is that we see in verse 28 is this. He made his appeal with a scriptural quote and he appealed to their purses and to their comfort. 
He said, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Now think about this. To go up to Jerusalem, you gather your family, right? You get your sacrifice. You're not getting into an air-conditioned car. I have driven a car up to Jerusalem. It's not flat. (laughs) Okay, you go up a mountain. I mean up a mountain. It was everything my little car, which wasn't a very good car, by the way, but my little car could do to go up it. In fact, as we were going, I was like, come on, squirrels, keep turning over the engine, keep going, keep going. Okay. It, It took a journey, didn't it? And then, of course, you had to get there, and of course, multitudes would have been there. It had been crowded, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It would have cost you significant time and significant money to do so. And Jeroboam appealed to their purses and to their ease. And, folks, when you appeal to people's purses and to their comforts, almost every time they what? Almost every time they will compromise. I mean, just think of all the money you could save and give to the gods there in Dan and Bethel. Think about all the wear and tear you wouldn't have on your family. And folks, we live in a day where that type of thing is exhorted to the people of God. You want to get up on Sunday morning, come to church on Sunday afternoon, come to a midweek prayer meeting. I mean, that's too much for you. You don't want to sit and listen to preaching. We don't need preaching. That's too much for you. We need to have you know, joint Bible discussion. But what's the problem with all that? It's not what the text says we should be doing. And it wasn't what the text through Moses was telling them to do either. And so in verses 31 through 33, he devised a worship to the Lord of his own heart, but not in accordance with what God said. And folks, this really is one of our danger points. I'm going to come back to this, but using Scripture without looking at the whole topic in your Bible. Getting in a committee and getting counsel and nobody's giving you any Scripture. This is a problem. Or people in churches, they get together and the staff get together and they bang around ideas and nobody's opening their Bible. But the Bible has a lot to say about our worship. And it also has restrictions on our worship. It's not that anything goes today. And folks, if we if we go in that direction, it will become sin for you. 
Now the fact of the matter is, those ten tribes should have dogmatically rejected this. Not just the Levites. Those ten tribes should have dogmatically resisted this. They had the temple in Solomon's day. They saw the glory coming in there. All the instruction that was going out. They should have dogmatically rejected it, but they didn't. And even though this is what Jeroboam made his appeal to the people, but I think his appeal is a little bit of insight on why the people capitulated. It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Following the Scripture, you're being legalistic. You're placing restrictions on us and restraints on us. Well, I understand that in some measure, but folks, let's just be honest about this. If God places a restriction, it's not legalism. It is the Lord who has done this. Now I want to conclude by just looking at this manner of using Scripture inappropriately. I want somebody here to turn to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 6. And when you get there, I want you to stand up and read it out loud after you tell us the situation that's happening. So someone get Matthew chapter 4 verse 6. You're going to read that verse, but tell us the situation of what's happening here. Someone got it? Walter, you got it? Um, Jesus is being tempted. Um, he was just baptized. He was led into the Spirit by the wilderness. Okay. Um, verse six. Who's tempting him? The devil. The devil is tempting him. Alright, go ahead and stand up and read verse 6. <clears throat> and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Okay, did everybody hear that? Thank you, Walter. Everybody hear that? Okay. Let's turn to that quote. Psalm 91, verse 11. Alright, now while we're turning there, I'm going to ask you, this isn't a trick question. Did the devil quote Scripture? Yes. He did quote Scripture. And he quoted it to the Son of God. Psalm 91, verse 11. For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They, His angels, will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And the psalm here is talking about the Lord. Now, I don't know what was going on in the Lord's mind other than He, he told Satan that He would not what? He would not tempt the Lord his God, right? But, 
Jesus being the Word, I'm assuming that He knew the psalm. Now look at the psalm again. He will give His angels charge concerning you and guard you in all your ways. <clears throat> they will bear you up. They will bear the Messiah up in their hands that the Messiah does not strike His foot against a stone. Okay, but what does the next verse say? The Messiah will tread upon the lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. He will what? So if you're the Lord, and He is thinking this, right? We don't know this, but you're the Lord. Gives quote. He knows the quote, right? Satan is using it to get him to tempt the Lord, but to him, when he reads that quote, he also knows the next verse, which is a great assurance that he's going to trample whose head? The serpent. And folks, this is the point that I'm making. We can use Scripture, but not use it appropriately because we don't, we're not using it completely. Another situation. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. <clears throat> so let's just review. Did Jeroboam use a verse? Notice what Jeroboam didn't do. He didn't tell them what the Lord did to that nation after they worshipped the calves. He just took the what? The verse. Satan takes a verse from Psalm 91, but he doesn't read the part that says that the Messiah is going to trample the dragon or the serpent, which is right there in front of him, right? Well, in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have a situation here, 1 Corinthians 8, 9, and 10, where the Corinthians were arguing for the right to eat meat that were sacrificed to idols. And of course, we have this, these famous verses that have been used in years past to free people to do whatever they wanted to do. When Paul writes in chapter 9, verse 20, to the Jews I became a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under law as under law, though not being under law that I might win those who are under law to those that are without law as without law. And, you know, to the weak I became weak. So here's a verse and several decades ago there was a lot of books using these verses to show there's nothing wrong if you wanted to go to the beach and do evangelism or walk into a bar and do evangelism or any of Go into, I'm not being in prayer, a nudist colony and evangelize. Go for it. Because to the weak I became, to the Jew I became like a Jew. Now what is the problem? That's not all the passage is saying. Paul's actually arguing for the opposite. He's not arguing that we have a right to do whatever we want to do as long as we do it under the name of evangelism. He's actually arguing, I give up my rights. 
so that I might win the lost. But folks, not only that, he's going to go down in chapter 10 and he's going to give them this warning. Verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not well pleased. Everybody see that? God's not well pleased. Is God not well pleased about certain Christian activity? Yes. Verse 6, these things happen so that we wouldn't crave evil things like they also craved. Verse 7, that we wouldn't sit down to eat and drink and stand up to play. Verse 8, that we wouldn't act immorally. Verse 9, that we wouldn't try the Lord. Verse 10, that we wouldn't be grumblers. Look at these examples and look at how the Lord responded. People died because of this. Verse 11, these things happen to them as an example. They're written for our correction, our instruction. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't want. And he comes down and says, verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, when it comes to eating food, yes, food is indifferent, but food offered to idols, flee from idolatry. Don't you see from your Old Testament God's response to this? And in fact, he's going to go on down and become very bold. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 21. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of deacons. Demons. <laughs> Sorry, deacons, I didn't mean that. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Do we really want to provoke the Lord to jealousy? But if we take the 1 Corinthians 9 passage and we yank it out of its context, and then we don't tell people the, what happens if we do it the way they're understanding it, we are walking in the way of Jeroboam. And it will become a sin. And we will wound our brothers. And when we wound our brothers, we sin against who? Christ. We sin against Christ. And folks, all of it is the same thing. Just because, please hear me, just because someone writes a book, just because someone sprinkles Scripture all throughout the book, doesn't make it right. You've got to know the Bible. You've got to know the context of what that passage is teaching. And typically, I found in books that are really deceptive. And I've read a lot of books in my life. That typically, the first third to the first half of the book is pretty good. 
So you're, you're just kind of reading along. Yeah, that's good. That's good. That's good. And the last two-thirds to the last half are terrible. Because they suck you into saying, well, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And you just keep saying, that's good, that's good, that's good, that's good. And it's not good. You say, well, I wouldn't fall for anything like that. Well, the ten tribes of Israel did. Are you better than them? Are you better than the Corinthians? If any man thinks he stand, take heed. Folks, let's not, let's not serve the Lord after the imaginations of my heart or anyone else's heart. Let's, let's saturate ourselves with what the Lord has said. Let's go to Him in prayer.